Episode 4, Building Cultural Infrastructure with Eddie Breitweiser. In a lot of ways, Eddie is the prototype for the guests I seek to be on this show. Eddie and I met in a professional capacity, and had it not been for an Instagram connection, I never would have known how additionally interesting he could be. Aside from his day job, Eddie invests his time advocating for pretrial fairness, as well as creating Point Forward, a space for contemporary sonic arts in central Illinois. If you're the type of person who wants to engage and doesn't know how, check out this episode. It just may inspire you. Okay, Eddie Breitweiser, we are live. Welcome officially to the Keep Your Day Job podcast. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and start with a brief introduction before we get into the questions. Sure, thanks, Ed. So my name is Eddie Breitweiser. I live in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, where I was born and raised. And I spend a lot of my time, and I think this is kind of why I'm here uh, to talk today, um, based on my background as an artist and musician, and more recently kind of operating as an arts organizer in town. Um, But that is not my day job, so to speak. And so I, as I said, I was uh, born and raised here, actually my wife and I both um, in, uh, in Bloomington. After uh, graduating from high school, um, we both moved to Chicago for about eight years where we went to college. Uh, college. college, and, college. and then uh, we moved uh, home in, back home in um, uh, 2012 to, uh, be closer to family and help with some family health stuff come up and so we were kind of uh left not necessarily expecting to come back and then uh somewhat unexpectedly found ourselves back here and so um some of what the last uh you know eight nine years have kind of been about for me have been you know kind of coming back into the community with new eyes um as an adult not a not a kid growing up and looking at sort of experiences I've had along the way, both in and outside of the community, and what I kind of want to bring into the community and kind of take forward from here. And so many of my most formative experiences, both here before I left and um, after I left town, um, have been about the power of the art and the power of music. And uh, so that's kind of uh, what I have taken up as my kind of personal mission, I suppose, for the last specifically five years, I would say. Yeah. So would you say, um, you mentioned coming back to the community with, with new eyes, um, for, for a bad way to phrase it, but uh, how can you talk a little bit more about that? What, how old were you when you left? How old were you when you came back? Mm-hmm. How, what, what did those new eyes provide you? What did you see differently? Yeah, so I I left when I was 18, so right after graduating high school, and um, came back, uh, how old was I, um, 25-ish, yeah, I think I was 25, um, maybe 26, mid-20s, but at any rate, um, I think there's something about uh, kind of a um, 
for lack of a better word, maybe like a bubble that I had um, when I lived here growing up, or I mean a few bubbles that kind of overlapped with each other, but um, I had, um, I, I liked, I liked living here. I liked growing up here. Uh, no complaints about that, but it just, it felt small. And um, I had a really tight knit um, group of friends and my kind of like first steps outside of, um, of kind of the, the growing up um, were into um, music. And I grew up um, in a pretty musical family. And um, I did uh, uh, like music lessons and stuff like that as a kid that was really strongly encouraged in my family and did band and all that kind of stuff. And by the time I got to high school, had really fallen in love with um, kind of like with with performing music as a whole, and what that looked like for me was a couple, a kind of a couple kind of tracks all side by side, but that sort of stepped on each other. Which was um, I played um, in a lot of rock bands and like noisy kind of like. Uh, experimental, post-punk, uh, just kind of goofy, having fun stuff, uh, which I had a blast with. And, um, but then I also, um, I suppose more air quotes, seriously, um, we had a really, I went to Central Catholic High School here where we had a really strong jazz program. And um, that was like a very like kind of mind expanding thing for myself as well. Um, and at the time, so again, this is like uh, early 2000s, um, we, uh, by kind of merit of universities being here, proximity to um, U of I, which is a, a really stellar music program as well. Um, there was a kind of, this ended up kind of being a pocket of lots of educators and um, uh performers and things who like like you could you could be like a a jazz musician and like make a living here at that time I think it's tough now but you could um back then and as a result we had things like the Heartland Jazz Orchestra um which I was a bass player and from they took a risk on me and from when I was time I was like 15 or 16 um and that was like a, it was like a pro gigging band that I played in and um kind of the end result of that was back to what I was saying a second ago, it was like um, performing music gave me this really kind of like, like I was like kind of dunked into the deep end of like people I didn't know, um, scenes or communities that were sort of below the surface of sort of what you, what you drive around town and see. Um, but there was like a lot of life and like a lot of vitality and a lot of um, fun and interesting people and things like that. And um, so that was that was something that like left a deep impression on me um, that, I, that I really still have. And that led me to wanna to pursue um, music going into college, which I did. Um, and so um, it, I did, I kind of had the assumption that that was gonna be my career and everything um, from the time I left town. 
And, uh, but living in Chicago um, and during the, during the time that I lived in Chicago, I also had, um, I, was, I was working as a musician and stuff and in the arts where I got to travel around the world and perform um, as I was kind of deepening uh, my, my skills and exposure as a composer as well as a, as a performer. Um, writing music that I would perform myself um, kind of in a um, experimental or contemporary classical vein, I would say, um, with heavy amounts of improvisation and electronics in them. Um, Chicago was kind of a hub for music like that, but I also got to, and I was really fortunate to be able to um, travel around to other cities in the US as well as um, some cities in Europe that do similar things. And it really kind of like made me realize <laughs> something that you can like read in a book, but I hadn't experienced like firsthand before, which was this kind of funny confluence of like playing in punk bands and stuff like that. And this is like very DIY kind of um, grassroots type of community building and music making and things like that was not confined to like particular style of music. It was like something that you just like, you can apply that kind of formula to sort of do anything. And that after, so again, I got exposure to it in Bloomington Normal, but then as I, as I traveled and lived in other places and things like that, I was able to kind of see that in action. And so that's something that's like, completely stuck with me that as I, as I sort of came back, it's like, how do, how do you be somebody who, um, you know, makes things happen, I suppose. And it's like, you don't need a ton of money to do stuff. Um, in certain respects, you don't even need like a ton of energy. It's not like a full-time, it can be a full-time job if you wanted to, but um, it doesn't so much take that much um, as it does like kind of, uh, I learned this phrase from Barry Blunderman, who was the longtime director of the University Galleries at ISU, and who was my former neighbor growing up. Um, he always said, and I've kind of taken this as a mantra, like, uh, start a fire and they will come. And I think that that's kind of it. And so that's, that's something I've tried to live by. Excuse my pause, I'm writing that down. <laughs> um, so I want to touch on that right there. I want, to, I want to drill into that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah. What you just described was over the course of going to school for music education at a university level, um, it seems that you learned a sort of air quotes scrappiness. Um, and I want to key on that because I think as a student who studied art myself, there was a, there was a peer in my class as an undergraduate who used to say that artists were musicians, or I'm sorry, magicians, musicians, you're the musician. <laughs> um, artists are magicians. And his, his thought there was, we are self-directed by our energy. We do not see many limits in terms of what is possible. And we commonly find ways to circumvent traditional norms and get things going. And you mentioned grassroots. So yeah. I, I find it very interesting, and I know we're going to bounce all over the place in this conversation, but um, I find it very interesting that you've been applying that strategy to your life and to your arts 
but you also found yourself involved um, in cash bail reform um, and a little bit of political advocacy. So without getting too far into the weeds, um, just tell me how you stumbled upon it, right? Because this is, as, as a music student, you very well could have uh, kept your head in the sand and not looked up, but this is a, a very different thing than what you were just describing with music. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, no, I think you kind of, I think you kind of um, summarized it well there, actually. So the, um, with the, so I'll kind of, I'll try to stay, take a step back before kind of getting into the, specifically into the cash bail reform stuff. But um, <laughs> the, when I knew you wanted to talk about this, I kind of had to ask myself, how did I get involved in that? Gosh, um, where did that kind of come from? And, it, you know, I, not to like rewind the tape all the way to the beginning, but um, when I talked about kind of uh, having um, grown up here and living in bubbles and things like that, um, one thing that's kind of interesting, at least to me, is that... I think one um, one kind of like parallel track to all the stuff that was going on um, as I was growing up and starting to get immersed in the arts and music and things like that is um, I was uh, I was raised Catholic and um, the my wife and I like talk about this nonstop but like the Bush years were a very strange time to be. A young Catholic. Um, <laughs> there, that's I think a topic in and of like it's worth its own podcast kind of thing. But what there was this, um, I think like largely kind of pushed by like the pro life movement. Um, there was this um, kind of like political urgency that. Um, what I think was instilled in a lot of uh, young American Christians that it's like, you know, it's like part of your, these two things kind of go hand in hand. Like you can't have, you, you know, part of like your mission, if you will, is like, uh, is being political. Um, and, you know, in a lot of respects, I think that that kind of um, meant that there was like a specific political playbook you were expected to be handed and like, uh just kind of execute on and um which i did see happen some but i think like when i when i kind of take a step back um and and look at sort of the overlap in my case between like what i think of as like arts organizing which you know is somewhat political but it's not like partisan i don't think mm -hmm. relative to these other kind of like um more explicitly uh political initiatives that um, I um, am kind of a, a, a um, accomplice, if you will, in rather than a lead on is uh, really kind of co goes back to this um, kind of like conviction that was instilled in me from from a young age of like <laughs> doing the right thing and like that, that you uh, you stick by people who need help and um, it's really kind of like that simple to me. It's, I, I don't know. And I don't um, think of myself as like a particularly 
Um, like I don't, when I, I don't like uh, go to mass still or anything like that. And like, I think that in a lot of respects, this is kind of like my um, expression of like my, um, my, like the, the ethics I was raised with, I suppose. Absolutely. I think that religion gives, I, I'm a very, I'm a non-religious person, but I have studied a lot of religion because I'm very interested in the way as a structure, it's able to create community. Oh, yeah. um, and I think sometimes people uh, characterize the, the, the sort of uh, Christian guilt that compels people to get involved. But what I'm so much more interested in, and I think what you're describing here is that religion in your case instilled some values of community and purpose. And you are now as an adult, albeit not under the religious structure, but you're exercising those same values out in the community. Yeah. Um, I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that that's it. And like, and I don't want to create like a, an impression of myself where it's like you know, I'm involved in like all these uh, all these um, political initiatives and things like that around town but I think that that's kind of like that's kind of the foundation that I'm operating from is like are there are there um, are there people who need help are there people who um, are um, how are we addressing equity in our community? How are we, um, you know, what 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 kind of um, structures do we have in place for aid? Um, who benefits from X Y Z thing? Yeah. Who has power in X Y Z thing? And I think that um, part of what I like about living in a community like this is that it's like small enough that I feel like you can actually see change enacted. Um, it doesn't take a significantly insane like political, uh, uh, like critical mass, I would say, in order to actually like affect lasting change and things like that. And so that's kind of like my whole, <laughs> that's my whole, that's my whole preface to get to, okay, so how did I get involved in the cash bail work? And really what the cash bail work um, came about because that critical mass existed. There was a, a really phenomenal, like still to this, to this day, I'm just in awe of it. Um, very sophisticated, very articulate, very focused grassroots organizing effort around the state. Um, and you find it in other states too, but it, particularly strong in Illinois um, that had very concrete goals that they were working toward with um, criminal justice reform, one of those being um, cash bail. And um, there's been kind of a theme over the course of my life. I haven't been like super involved, but I've, I've been um, a, like a recurring theme has kind of been um, a, uh, uh, a frustration with mass incarceration and a like that being a particularly like egregious um and unacceptable kind of like evil that just is like it feels like in a lot of ways it's like a low simmer um in kind of our like national consciousness all the time right and um when i kind of got wind through some 
personal contacts that there was like an upswing in energy and momentum toward criminal justice reform with like extraordinarily ambitious goals. Um, and they needed help in McLean County. I was like, okay, what can I do? Like, I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, I don't have like a criminal background. I don't have like a strong story to tell. Like even right now I'm struggling to kind of tell like, why am I here? These kinds of things. But it's like, I'm somebody who can help, who's got energy, who, um, if you tell me what you need to do, I can help make it happen. Um, and so that was really it. It was very much like a fellow traveler kind of thing. It was like the, the, the group was there, the infrastructure was there and there was a gap and that gap was, okay, we need data. We need, um, we need connections with people. We need to create a network and things like that in McLean County, because there's this kind of like gap through central Illinois mm -hmm. where the, the initiative was really, as you might expect, really heavily focused in Cook County and in, uh, East St. Louis area. And it was kind of like, okay, how do we fill in the belt um, in the middle of the state? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that was, that was how I got involved with it. It was through a kind of a consortium effort of um, uh, various local organizations, including um, the uh, Black Lives Matter, um, the um, um, uh, UUC church in town here, uh, uh, Bloomington Normal DSA um, and a few other faith groups, um, the ACLU, and um, more recently YWCA, McLean County as well, um, all kind of came to the table together, really just through personal connections with one another, and said, um, "What can we do to kind of support this effort?" And that's that kind of the the rest at this point is history, because just well, not history, history, but. Uh, just for those who weren't aware, a couple weeks ago, um, Illinois passed the Pretrial Fairness Act, which was kind of the big, um, the big, how would you say, um, well, the, the Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice um, had, a, had a strong um, initiative in trying to get that act passed. And so that was like the, the kind of major accomplishment of this grassroots organizing coupled with um, lobbying in Springfield um, yeah. and um, and sort of learning from what had happened um, worked well, what hadn't worked well across other states trying to pass uh, similar bills. And so lucky to be living in a state now that uh, has what you could consider to be the um, most ambitious uh, criminal justice reform uh, bill in the union and that's really exciting and so i i want to say this before i bring you back to another point about local change um mass incarceration is not a partisan issue it is an american issue um from taxpayers to yeah. police officers to correctional officers and to the arrestees themselves um COVID, public health yeah Right. right. We, we are all paying for this in one way or another. Um, so we can debate, you know, the individual merits of a particular person being arrested. Um, but the reality is we spend way too much time, way too much money. And there is no real system to reintroduce um, people back into the community after any sort of incarceration. So if we want to succeed as a country, 
I, I believe very strongly that Democrat, Republican, socialist, whatever you are, this has to be near the top of your list of priorities. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, and I, I, I appreciate how you put it because I don't, I don't, I think it's getting um, miscast as a partisan issue, in my opinion. Um, you know, there are, there are very few um, interest groups that are opposed to it. They're very, they're, they're powerful, they're large, they're, they make a lot of noise. Um, but it's not this like, how would you put it? Um, I mean, it's, it's what you said. I think it, it I think it's, it's really in um, everybody's best interest to try to make communities safer, to um, give um, people second chances, to give people shots, to um, make sure that um, things like cash bail uh, don't continue to funnel um, money, people, brains, hearts, mm -hmm. children, all these out of under-resourced communities. Um, and that's, a, that's not even just, you know, this is a thing in, you know, in central Illinois, sometimes you hear, well, oh, that's an urban issue. It's not an urban issue. It affects, it affects rural parts of the state as well. Um, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this brings me to my other point. Uh, I listen to podcasts with Eric Weinstein a lot, and he talks about this moment that we're in as a country. And he says, there are people right now who have found their time to fight, and those people should be the loudest voices in the room. Um, but those of us who have not seen our opportunity yet should wait eagerly and uh, try to identify that opportunity. Okay. So you talked about this sort of groundswell of activity that happened uh, around pretrial fairness, um, and, and then you got swept up in it. So just as a person who may want to get involved with something without putting much skin in the game, um, tell me about how easy it was for you to fall in line with these, not fall in line, but fall into this group and begin supporting it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, that's a great point. And what I would say is you can look to a, a, an initiative like um, pretrial fairness, cash bill, um, abolition, um, and criminal justice reform as one issue that, um, and, and you know, I think the Illinois Pretrial um, Network for Pretrial Justice exemplifies this in a way that I've, again, I've never seen something this powerful before. No matter what your quote angle is, if you're part of a faith community, if you're a faith leader, if you are um, interested in um, uh, women's rights issues, uh, racial equity, um, <laughs> you know, uh, making sure that tax dollars aren't wasted, you know, like pick a lane. It doesn't make a difference. There is an there is an organization in um, in the state that you are probably following in some way whether it's your church, um, a, uh, a nonprofit, whatever, that is that represents your interests in a movement like this. It's truly like it's a group effort and um, you can find ways to, um, you know, if, if you're somebody who likes to read books, there are books you can read. If you're somebody who likes to donate money, there are organizations you can donate money to. Um, 
if you're somebody who likes to donate time, no matter what your skill set is, you can donate some amount of time and make things like this happen. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've seen over the course of um, um, the roughly two years that I've been um, involved in this in this effort is that the when the asks are very clear, people step up and make them happen. You know, mm -hmm. there are times where I'm swamped, you know, I've got work, I've got family stuff, all these kinds of things. But because I'm, I've, I've subscribed to the email list, you know, I get a very clear call to action saying, hey, we need witness slips for a, um, a bill that's, a, that's up for committee review in the General Assembly. Please contact your legislators, right? It takes organizers to make that happen, to make the asks very clear. Um, good organizers will do a lot of that work for you. Um, what's important is that we support them so that they can support us, right? That means if you can donate money to the organizations that pay those organizers, um, or you know, if you're completely strapped for time, you don't have money, um, whatever, you know, sign up for the email lists. When you get a call to action, take advantage of it, right? Yeah. Be, be at the table as best you can. Absolutely. I, mean, I, think, I, I think, you know, I, I think there are so many kind of um, challenges and frustrating things about being so plugged into um, social media and things like this. I don't think it's been overall great for our politics, but I think good organizers have figured out how to um, use social media well to get in front of right people when they need something. Yes. Sometimes the most important thing you can do is like, or that not, not, I shouldn't say the most important thing, but the first thing you can do, follow those accounts, sign up for those emails, um, those kinds of things. And, and when you're called upon, act from there, get as involved as you can. Right. And I think one thing you're calling out right there is individual agency. Um, it may be your financial agency. It may be the amount of time you have. It may be your social media platform. Um, but we all can understand the bandwidth we have uh, yeah. to, to engage and then the amplitude that we can engage at. Right. Like I, if you've got a thousand followers on Twitter and you feel strongly about something, the great thing about 2021 is you can convince a thousand people at the stroke of a, you know, the stroke of a, a key to, to change, if not holistically, you know, to, 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 to put some new ideas into the ether. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, another thing I'll say, I, um, this was kind of a, this was a learning experience for me. I, I've never been somebody who wrote letters to the editor. I wrote two letters to the editor. Um, actually, excuse me. I, I, I wrote one letter to the editor on this campaign. I was mixing it up with something else. I wrote one letter to the editor on this campaign and somebody very unexpected that I worked with wanted to have a conversation about it. You know, it showed me like, oh, okay. You know, it took me an hour or two to put this thing together, to put it in the, um, the you know, the, the Panagraph published it. And it changed somebody's mind with me not even having to really have that, that conversation. But it's like, it's, it's kind of the thing of, um, you know, I think you can, um, 
I hate the idea of like talking about like your brand, like your individual brand, but it's like, you know, you, you, whoever you are, you have like a reputation, you have credibility with people, these kinds of things um, in whatever communities you interface with, whether it's your workplace, um, your, your, um, your, your, your church, um, your neighborhood, any of these kinds of things. And I think you can like, there are all these different ways where you can kind of, um, um, Take advantage of that, leverage that, and and like kind of use your uh, credibility to make um, actual change happen. And it, and that was again, that was an eye-opening experience writing those letters to the editor. That's not something I typically like to do. Um, it takes it. To, I mean it from the standpoint of like it takes energy, it takes focus for me to do that that I don't always have. But the times that I've done it, I think it pays dividends. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting. As I, I really enjoy Instagram and I find it a way to to meet friends like you at a different yeah. level than we first knew each other. Um, I get to see some insight into your life and I get to begin creating the character of who I understand as Eddie Breitweiser. But one thing that I think is incredibly interesting about you is that characters can evolve and change and story art can change. So let's change this conversation a little bit to your next project, which has absolutely nothing to do with prison, um, but it has a lot to do with art. Um, so you are also the organizer and creator of Point Forward, which is a nonprofit program that presents performances of contemporary music and sonic arts in Bloomington, Illinois, Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. Um, that is like nothing else we have seen around here. So. Give us some background. Um, tell us about that same energy that yeah. drove you to get involved in other things and how you organized a group of people for this aim. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when, so like I said, I, uh, I moved back, um, my wife and I moved back to um, Bloomington Normal from Chicago um, in 2012. And um, it was kind of a funny thing because at that time I had, um, you know, I'd gone to school um, for music composition and kind of had it uh, fresh in my head like, yeah, okay, that's what I'm going to do in my mid-20s, that's going to be my career, but how the heck do I actually make that happen, right, particularly when like I live in Bloomington Normal and God knows how long I'm going to be here, all these kinds of things. And I had had um, kind of kicking around in my head for a while after moving home that, you know, it'd be really cool and there's nothing stopping this community from um, having a, a kind of hub, if you will, for contemporary music. And when I say contemporary music, what I'm talking about is, and I don't mean to put too fine of a, of a, of a, constraint on what I'm talking about, but um, the music that really excites me and energizes the mo me the most is um, music that is about uh, artists taking risks, exploring new sonic terrain, mm -hmm. um, experimenting with, um, with new sounds and uh, new relationships between performers and things like that that really are kind of at the at the forefront of uh, musical language and culture that we have never really heard before. 
Um, you know, I love all kinds of music. I consider myself to be like an omnivore um, in terms of listening to things. But there's a, there's a gap in our community, I think, for that type of musical experience. And um, where, frankly, to our credit, I think we do, we do a lot of other um, uh, types of musical performances and things like that really, really well. And so that was kind of like where I was coming from at the start was like, you know what, we actually, we have like, we have for our size, we have like a really good um, kind of musical uh, scene, I would say, but we don't have infrastructure for, um, for composers and artists and musicians who are um, making this type of music that I wanna hear. And whereas when I came from Chicago, in Chicago, um, there are, you know, more galleries or venues or nonprofits or music series or whatever, than you can shake a stick at that are doing this kind of thing. You know, it's a, it's a hotbed for avant-garde jazz. It's a hotbed for um, uh, dance music and uh, kind of uh, really forward-thinking electronic music and uh, improvised music and all these kinds of things. And it's really, you know, built a reputation. This is why I moved there to, as, a, as a global um, hotspot for, for all of that. And so I kind of, when I, that was sort of what was like in the back of my mind as I came home. I was struggling a little bit to kind of get a foothold here um, as I was, I was continuing to get gigs at the time, but none of them were here. So it was, it was, like traveling was hard and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, Man, I just, I, I would like to be able to do this in my backyard. Um, then uh, that idea kind of simmered for a little while. And um, what, and part of the reason it was allowed to simmer is because um, I, actually Barry Blinderman, who I mentioned earlier, who at the time was the, he recently, he retired within the last couple of years as being the director of the University Galleries at ISU. Um, he he and I have similar musical tastes and things and he had a similar idea and he's like you know what I'm just going to do this at the gallery and so they launched a series called New Sounds um, which actually I, I played in once it was a lot of fun really really cool but they got kind of burnt out doing it um, but at any rate when I first moved here there was something kind of like what I was looking for but it was it was small and so um, fast forward to 2018 um, I was at a point where I was like, you know what? Um, I'm really, I'm ready to make this happen. Um, I'm really to, I'm ready to kind of um, create some infrastructure, if you will, to um, have musicians in our community be successful who are trying to do this type of like um, um, challenging, um, uh, sometimes difficult, music from like a lifestyle standpoint when there's not a lot of um, right. opportunities for exposure for, for money or things like that. I'm ready to, um, and I've got skills I think that can make that happen. And on top of that, I was also at a point fortunately where um, uh, my employer offers uh, good um, incentives for employees to get involved in the community, both financially and time off wise. And so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna take advantage of it. And so I, um, I launched us in 2018 and it started just as a three, um, three uh, uh, concert 
series. And um, since then, um, we've evolved to the point where we have a, uh, an artist in residency program where we um, support uh, one local artist and one regional artist um, from the Midwest to uh, come into our community, um, create a new work with a pretty generous financial stipend and um, pay them to, do a, uh, to present that work. Um, we also do a series of concerts throughout the year which we've had to shift um, to be streaming due to COVID. Um, but uh, really where we're trying to do kind of two things simultaneously, and it's really from the standpoint of like cultural infrastructure is like create opportunities for those people who are already here doing these things and to be seen um, and to be heard on a more visible scale. And then um, also to bring those who are doing this type of work to our community um, so that they, so that the, our community can engage with people from Chicago, St. Louis, uh, Wisconsin, Kentucky, whatever, um, and actually like have a, have a space where, where we can kind of encounter the next generation of, um, and foster the next generation of sound artists here. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing that strikes me the most is you mentioning Barry Blinderman was <laughs> your neighbor. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah fills in a lot of pieces for me. I met Barry Blinderman when I came to ISU in 2001. He was the then curator and ran the ISU gallery. For those of you who are not familiar with Barry Blinderman, he was a large cultural figure in the New York in the 80s and 90s. Um, and it was extremely impressive for ISU to be able to bring a person like that into our community to influence the artistic culture. And as a student who was at ISU during that time, and now uh, an adult coming back, we can visibly see the impact Barry yeah. Blender had on the infrastructure of art in Bloomington Normal. Yeah. Uh, thinking more about yourself, yeah. I love that you are describing that you are creating an infrastructure for this sort of contemporary art, because that's exactly what needs to happen. We need to be deliberate about how we organize and the steps we take to build uh, an audience around this. So can you go into a little bit, you mentioned you had two artists in residences, residency. Um, how do you, can you tell me a little bit more about the selection process? You've got one local, one regional. How are you thinking about fostering local talent while bringing in new ideas? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's, a, that's an important question actually. Um, so with the residency, um, the residency was actually, that was kind of a pet project, a specific pet project nested within a pet project where I, um, I really, you know, as somebody with a, with a creative background, I think that um, residencies are so important from the standpoint of not only providing financial resources, but providing access to artists and space and time to be able to make work. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, nowadays when it's like, it's hard enough to kind of make a living um, as, a, as a working artist. I think even if you're not a full-time working artist, um, it's there's you know we're all being spread so thin and pulled in so many different directions i think it's almost in some respects 
equally as important to provide financial opportunities and, and, and venues for art to happen as it is to actually create space and time for people to be able to make art. And, and one thing I should point out there, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, I, I don't want to derail your point, but for the listeners, Eddie's talking about time and space at a time when we are sending students to art school for specific durations and those students are taught to finish projects in certain durations. So as a, as, a, as a person who went through art school and it took me several years to kind of break the bad habits of crank out one painting a week, um, the, the luxury of time as an artist is, 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 is non-quantifiable. And I don't even know if that's a word, but the ability and security to sit with an idea and have the confidence that it will resonate and grow um, and once it is mature, it can then be pushed out into, into the dialogue. So yeah, that's exactly a, right. And I think, and, you know, part of what we recognized as an organization was like, you know, after two seasons of, of performances and we, we pay artists, you know, we pride ourselves on paying artists pretty well for, um, for, for performing, but we're, when you pay artists to perform, you know, it's it's almost like you're you're it's like back pay for something that they already made, right? That's a great way to describe it. Yeah, and what we what we wanted to do instead was um, be more of a partner um, in the kind of like really fragile early stages of projects that didn't quite have legs yet. You know, what's that kind of thing that you've been mulling over for a long period of time, but you've been you know you've been grinding and you know, uh, making gigs and like dealing with COVID and all this stuff that's just like, that's making it impossible for you to focus. What can we do to work together over, over a span of months to try to realize something that, that wouldn't be able to be accomplished without this residency? Um, and so that, that's kind of what, that was the genesis of the whole thing, but you asked kind of what the selection process was like. And this was actually, this was a huge learning experience for everybody in the organization, including myself. Um, we had a very frank conversation um, within Point Forward um, and to, to just kind of level set. So Point Forward is a, it's a nonprofit and it's totally volunteer run. So we, um, it, our board at this point is, I would have to count, gosh, Six, yeah, we have six people on the, what, right? no, seven people on the board um, who collaborate to make these projects um, happen. And um, we had to have a really um, deliberate, intentional conversation about kind of where we wanted the, the organization to go because we had um, started from a point of working within our networks to get off the ground, which was fine. But we looked around the room, um, all of us were white, most of us were men, um, and it became very obvious that we were challenging our, that there were, there were biases within our networks and we needed to take deliberate steps to challenge ourselves to move outside of our most, you know, our closest, most trusted networks, um, if we were going to be, um, you know, really representing like, you know, from an artistic standpoint, representing what's happening artistically, 
but also, you know, like serving the community, right? Like we're, we didn't want to be an organization that just quote, sounds like white men, you know, that's not, that's not the point. That's not what we're trying to do. So, or even worse. I mean, I think we have organizations that fall into um, some form of tokenization yeah. where they're trying to seek artists to fill a gender or race yeah. role. Um, yeah. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, 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 totally. And um, so what we did for launching the residency, the residency was our first like big attempt at addressing like what you could call like, you know, institutional issues um, mm -hmm. around equity. And um, I will qualify all this by saying like, we, you know, this is an ongoing process. Like it's not something we do perfectly. I don't want to like hold ourselves up, like <laughs> give ourselves too much credit and say that we've like, yeah, we solved everything. That's not it. But I'm, I'm super proud of the work that we've been done here. Um, where what we did was uh, we consulted an organization um, or consulted with, I should say, an organization called the Jerome Foundation, which is based out of New York and um, has a specific mission of addressing racial equity in the arts. Um, but you can kind of take their model and they, they encourage this. You can kind of take their model to, to um, extrapolate onto um, broader issues of equity rather than specifically racial equity. But um, we thought that that was a good starting point. And um, we said like, and we applied for a grant to make the, um, the residency happen. And we said in our application, like this is going to be um, a, a needs-based equitable residency program. So we're going to do everything that we can to um, direct those funds that we receive and the opportunities that we're presenting to those who need it the most, those who are underserved um, and like effectively bring new voices to the table that we haven't done as good of a job as we wanted to represent in the past. And um, so by going about doing that, um, you know, we could have like a, <laughs> we could have a super long conversation on specifically this topic. But um, when we looked at sourcing the artists, um, we uh, selected a panel of um, where we reached outside of our networks um, to uh, find artists of color um, who would either were operating in our community or in um, the communities that uh, we wanted to build deeper connections with. And um, then put a call uh, out to um, really all the states that touch Illinois um, about, the, about the opportunities for the residency. And then we had, um, we really left the um, panelists to recommend to the board who was gonna be selected. And we gave them some kind of um, um, parameters of kind of what we were looking for and stuff like that. But we tried to be very hands off and and let the let the panelists um, uh, kind of come to us with um, with their recommendations. And it was like it was it was a very very um, it was fun. Um, it was difficult. We had conversations that we um, would not have had if we hadn't tried very hard to kind of um, uh, adopt this equitable model because I think it's something that you know you unfortunately you have to put effort and energy into if it's if it's going to come come to light 
Um, but so the end result of that was um, that, you know, we weren't sitting there, as you said, we, you know, you give the example of tokenism, we weren't sitting there trying to say like, you know what, we, we must kind of check these boxes with, um, with who we're selecting, but we're going to kind of release some of our control over the situation and bring other people to the table um, and listen to them and trust them about um, who they're hearing as, you know, voices who represent the music that we should all be hearing together. Um, and so uh, the end result of that was selecting the, the two artists, uh, Zachary Leachman from Peoria and Alan Moore from Chicago, who are gonna be uh, performing with us over the next couple months. Exciting. Yeah. One thing I hear you talk about, I hear you mention the word equity a lot. Yeah. And whether we're talking about some of the um, pre-child fairness stuff or some of your involvement with Point Forward, it's, I always ask myself the question as an artist, is it art? And what I'm hearing from you feels like art because I'm hearing an idea develop. I'm watching you organize around that idea, but then I'm also watching you in real time be critical of that idea, identify biases, attempt to resolve or break down those as best you can. And as a result, the project evolves and the project grows. That's, yeah. that's huge. That, that, that sort of self-awareness is, I think it's common in a lot of artists, but it takes a very long time to develop that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I appreciate your, I think, you know, like, like one example, um, I think, um, that came up for us was, um, last summer um, at the, uh, uh, you know, as the movement for Black Lives started really gaining steam um, nationally. And we started to kind of get a sense for, I'll say like kind of what that looked like in, in our community. And it, you know, it was, um, you know, it was, it was real expressions of, um, of inequity and, and, and pain and, um, you know, ugliness in a way that people don't want to acknowledge exists in our community. And um, it was something that uh, we, you know, you, you, you well, you want to, um, you want to support um, and, um, and provide aid and, uh, you know, do what you can to uh, fix these type of systemic issues. And um, sometimes I think that can be a little difficult. I, you know, I kind, of, I kind of question sometimes whether, you know, just like showing up for protests is like, is that actually, right. actually change? Is that, is that what we want? And so, you know, we, we had a conversation as an organization, as point forward, I mean, um, and this was like, this was the type of thing where I was just like, it was so energizing to me that the topic even came up was like, we try, we pride ourselves on trying to create cultural infrastructure so that new voices can be heard um, so that musicians and artists can express themselves so that we can have powerful new listening experiences. And, you know, the, there is something that we can do as an organization. And um, after kind of uh, having uh, 
dialogues with uh, with Black Lives Matter and a few, um, you know, kind of individual uh, uh, organizers who were um, kind of around that. One thing that we we found that there was a need for um, uh, a PA system. They didn't have a PA system. And we're like, okay, well, Point Forward has a PA system. You can use it whenever you want kind of thing. And so it, it ended up evolving into this like really exciting, um, kind of very unexpected um, uh, dimension of, you know, that fit directly within our mission as an organization, um, but was just something that had never occurred to us before until we were, until we kind of took a position of like listening to the needs of the community Right. Rather than coming in with a prescribed thing that we were trying to make people hear. And um, as a result of that, we ended up um, kind of developing like a, using air quotes, like a sonic partnership with Black Lives Matter, where um, over the course of the summer, um, they had kind of free access to any of our gear that they wanted for their, um, for their events and things like that. And um, a great example, though, of, 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 a, of a unique outreach. Yeah from your group into the community as a result of paying attention, listening, waiting for the right moment. And then when you see an opportunity, capitalizing on that opportunity, I think that's huge. Well, exactly. And it's like, you know, it, what, what I thought was like really beautiful about the whole thing was like taking a step back. And like I said, it aligned exactly with our mission completely unintentionally. We didn't set that. We didn't set out to be quote, a political organization. You know, our mission is is to provide um, like powerful community-based sonic experiences. And if you attended any of the events in town over, over the course of the movement for Black Lives, like that's exactly what those were. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we, can't, we can't take credit for that, um, but I'm, I'm really, really happy that we found a way that we could, we could support it and provide value. Um, um, cause uh, you know, at, at, from the outset, that's what, that's what we existed to do. And when we started, we thought it was going to look a particular way, but as you said, it's like, it's, it's evolved and it's looking, it's looking different and more dynamic. And, um, I think more alive than anything that we could initially conceive. Right. That's a really interesting example of how point forward was able to make some cultural outreach. Mm-hmm. What do you have any other interesting examples people may want to hear about with respect to outreach because i'll say this um i've listened to the music on your Bandcamp page and for those of us who are not too skilled on contemporary music you can't dance to it <laughs> no but, but but right that's the question that's the question you are creating you're asserting a space that is a unique space in bloomington largely as a result of your experience how do you help your organization spread across a community that is not exactly averse to it, but unaware. Yeah, no, I think that that's, um, I wish I had a good answer for that. Because I, I, frankly, I don't. I think that that's something where we kind of, I have to, we together have to be humble and sort of actually adopt this posture of listening. And you say, what, what does the community need and how can we serve it? And um, I think the times when we've been most successful have been the times when we've done that well. The times we've been least successful are those times when we don't do it well. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a you know, the, the, the comment about Bandcamp. Um, you know, there is a dimension of um, accessibility 
I would say maybe, um, that all contemporary art struggles with. This is not unique to point forward. I think for one reason or another, um, I think it's particularly pronounced in, um, in contemporary music where, you know, I, I, this is again, a subject for a whole nother podcast, but you know, kind of in what ways has um, uh, the avant-garde less, left listeners behind, I think is a really, is a really um, fascinating um, under, dis I don't wanna say under discussed, but under kind of um, underemphasized topic in, um, in sonic culture, particularly in the US. Um, but that's do you a, think that is a problem that's unique to music uh, a sonic culture because what I would say is in the arts the avant-garde from my my knowledge of it right in painting the avant-garde rose against the institution and ironically with the rise of kind of academicization of art yeah I think we've seen the same thing in 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 physical art right and I, sculpture and painting yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I don't. I know. I think you're right. I don't think it's. Um, um, I don't think it's a, a problem that's isolated to um, to sonic uh, culture. I think, just as you said, I think it's equally. Um, you know, there's a well-documented history of and debate around um, around uh, avant-garde visual, visual culture as well. Um, and, but I think that the. Uh, you know, we're kind of, the, I don't know, the, the, the academic institutions of, uh, of music and of sound are in some ways like more calcified, I think, than they are in the visual arts. And again, that's a whole, that's a whole, <laughs> you know, talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like having a, having a conversation about topics like this, right? Um, but it's uh, that's I think that that's something that we've got to we've got to take seriously, because um, you know like I, I'll kind of bring it back into the real world, which was the, the example of um, partnering with uh, Black Lives Matter. One thing that we saw there is that um, the what we were amplifying, what Point Forward was amplifying, if you think of it that way, was um you know was speech was um hip-hop music was um um in some ways kind of like background music for the purpose of communal celebrations mm -hmm. right these kinds of things that are um you know are importantly those are those are forms of listening as, as you know, just as much as sitting down and, and listening to a concert, um, and the, I think what we have to, um, what we have to challenge ourselves to do as an organization, um, and I would say broadly as as listeners, is kind of is kind of be, um, be an advocate in a way for. Um, giving equal footing to these to these um to these different forms of listening mm -hmm. that um aren't well, you're not privileging one over the other um 
And I think that that means being able to, and, and I think, I hope that folks will see this over the course of our upcoming season. Like, you know, we have, we're going to have some like, just like, you know, if, if COVID wasn't an issue, like events where uh, we just be, be dancing together yeah. to like loud, awesome dance music. And we're adapting that for a COVID environment. But at the same time, we're going to have um, uh, one of our artists is working on a, a really, really powerful project that's um, kind of about the the uh, the black experience in Orange County, um, as told through dialogue, as told through oral conversations, right. and turning that into uh, kind of a, a, a sonic composition and things, as well as. Um, listening to uh, some kind of um, improvised um, uh, types of uh, types of music that are kind of like roughly in the jazz spectrum a little bit right and I think it's kind of this idea of um, how do we how do we grow we as an organization how do we grow our ears as widely as we can because so that people can hear themselves in our concerts because we want that to happen. You know, right. we want to kind of, um, we want to be a, like a level above a scene, <laughs> you know, where it's like, it's not so neat that nobody can appreciate it, but, um, but that it's thoughtful and it's well curated and it's high quality. And, um, and again, it's like, it's actually, it's doing something for people. Um, it's making it's make, making people encounter new things. It's making the works that individuals create encounter new ears. Yeah, and and using that as a catalyst for community building. Right. Um, so, so is it um, is it too far a leap to say a successful point forward performance would resonate the culture and emotion and tone of the community? Uh, no, I, th I think that's I think that's accurate. Okay. Okay. So then, thinking more, I mean, I'm I'm excited about these performances. I know COVID's COVID's hampering us right now, but help our audience understand how they can get involved with Point Forward. Um, not from an obvious join an organization, but um, how do we continue to champion the arts? What performances should we be aware of from Point Forward? And um, what needs do you have that potential interested parties could help you fill? Yeah, of course. So um, the uh, lots of questions there. So kind of break them down. So um, let's start first off. Okay, let, let's just we'll, we'll go ahead rapid fire them. Let's do this. Okay, first, um, what events do you have coming up that the or, the community should be aware of? Yes, our um, our next concert is going to be on. Saturday, February 27th. Um, we'll be posting information about this on Instagram soon. Um, and uh, that's going to be, we've partnered with two organizations in Chicago um, to do a series of streaming concerts called the Quarantine Concerts. We're curating one on February 27th and another one later in September. And that's gonna kind of be a showcase of artists, um, both local and regional, um, who uh, uh, we've been uh, trying to find a way to support for some time. And so you'll be able to tune into that via Twitch and watch um, 30 minute uh, performances by six artists. And um, 
a quick plug for that that's that's super exciting is that the, the quarantine concerts um were as i said conceived by two organizations um and uh, a series of kind of grassroots organizers arts organizers in chicago um including experimental sound studio and elastic arts and though over the core though they were really responding to this need that like um experimental music um is needs to organize in order to provide assistance and aid for our people during the pandemic mm -hmm. and so they very quickly mobilized to do this uh this series of streaming concerts called that became the quarantine concerts that was able to raise over the course of the year more than uh, twenty thousand dollars for experimental artists all over the world and um we that ended up we participated in it last year last april and um had that was our single largest most attended concert that we've ever had um, more than 400 people tuned into it um, we raised almost 900 dollars for artists who are um, in our community and beyond who are directly impacted by covid um, so that was that was something we were thrilled to see that that's um continuing into 2021 and we're actively partnering with those organizations to find out um, what more can come from our partnerships together okay um besides that um all this stuff is online, so don't worry about writing it down, or it will be online soon. Uh, in March and April, um, our main focus is going to be presenting work by our artists and residents. Um, as I said, uh, Zachary Leachman in Peoria and Alan Moore in Chicago um, are going to be um, coming to Bloomington Normal to do, to present the work that they've been creating over the course of the past roughly eight months um and so stay tuned for what those are actually going to look like but um each of them is going to have a workshop where you're going to be able to learn more about the work that they created and then they're going to have the performance themselves the performance is going to be um through our venue partner who is the mclean county um, uh, museum of history mm. uh, formerly the historical society which is located in downtown bloomington the old courthouse and so what we're, this is a little TBD, but what we think it's gonna be is that the performances are actually gonna take place in the courthouse. Um, they're gonna be closed concerts, not to the public, but we're gonna stream them um, so that uh, the public can tune in. But uh, each artist in their own way is uh, finding a way to kind of interact with the architecture of the space, um, as well as some of the materials that they have in the archives of the museum and things, which is, is gonna be really, 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 really stimulating, I think. Wow, that'll be interesting. Yep, and then uh, we're still kind of wrapping our heads around this, but we'll have a fundraiser event and probably a summer event, um, hopefully post-vaccine uh, rollout <laughs> where we'll be able to maybe come together uh, once again, and then we'll wrap up our season, uh, as I said, in September with another quarantine concert. Interesting, interesting. so then um, last question. How can the community continue to support your efforts of building cultural infrastructure? And I want to remove us from the two immediate topics that we talked about of cash bail reform and you know contemporary music, because I think, again, the theme to this conversation today has been an individual who has a certain type of energy and is harnessing and developing that energy and putting it to good use in the community. So how can, how can people who have been interested in this conversation continue to support it? Yeah, so the, the, I'll give two different answers. The, um, 
the kind of mass answer for yep. most people is um, kind of cheesy, but do it. Uh, follow us online at point forward at pt.fwd. I'm sure Heavy's going to share that. Uh, All over the uh, share notes. Yep. Uh, so follow us, stay tuned, um, and just tune in when the opportunity arises and tune in with an open mind. Um, a more uh, specific answer um, for any listeners who um, are really energized by the fact that this organization exists, get in touch with us and let's figure out how, to, how we can support each other to make something happen. If that means that you're a performing artist um, or you have an idea to organize a concert or you see a need um, for, uh, you know, for sound, for listening, whatever, um, in our community, um, we're always looking and um, are really eager to find new organizations, um, new individuals, uh, new projects to partner with. Um, we have a couple in the works that are premature so I won't share them, but we're super, super, super excited about, um, particularly on the on the front of engaging with like local youth organizations and things. And so, um, yeah. So I would say if this like particularly excites you and you have an idea, um, don't hesitate to to bring that to us so we can figure out if there's a way to make it happen together. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm so energized about you saying there is you're describing a very low barrier to entry. And what I would like to articulate to folks on the phone is this is an opportunity to engage with contemporary art without having to build a level of acumen that may have otherwise removed you from the conversation. Um, what's so great about, about cultural infrastructure like this in a small community like Bloomington is, is folks are willing to take any sort of help and participation, whether it be time, financial, um, you know, just intellectual capacity. Uh, it, the, you help build the project. You help build contemporary art locally just by reaching out, just by following. Um, and that's exciting. That's, that's one really unique thing about this community. And you touched on it earlier. I wanted to circle back to it. So I'm glad this came up again. When I came here after living in Phoenix, Philadelphia, Chicago, um, the scale of this city excited me because change became tangible yeah. um you know at a town when we have such low voter turnout a couple hundred voters can swing the entire political direction and what you're describing here is you know a couple hours of your time could change the face of contemporary music in this city what a what a strange concept yeah. um so that's that's extremely invigorating to me um i can't thank you enough for coming on and giving us this information. I think this is one of my favorite podcasts so far. I've had goosebumps over here just listening to you, Eddie. Um, and again, all this while maintaining a day job. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, great. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, if you want to leave us with any parting words, we're all ears. Otherwise, um, we're happy to interview whoever else you would like us to speak to. Yeah, cool. Now, the, the last thing I would say, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll echo a theme that's come up a number of times if you start a fire they will come true that is really the truth let's end it on that thanks eddie thank you for listening in the coming weeks and months we will continue to focus on local political and cultural issues 
What we learn from guests like Eddie is to remain keenly aware of our individual agency. As we drone on through winter, I challenge each of you to think about what progress means and what effort and time, if any, you can contribute. If nothing more, let the Keep Your Day Job podcast serve as a reminder that if we build a fire, they will come.